So let's take the Word of God, not taking it for granted, but opening it up together. Join me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're picking up where we left off last week as we continue to work passage by passage through this epistle. Our focus is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5 today. While you're uh, turning there, let me remind you of the context. In these first two chapters, we find the root issue for why the Corinthian church was such a mess. Why they were plagued by divisions. Why they were plagued with disorder and factions. Why was this church so divided? It's because they had become infatuated with human and worldly ideals of wisdom and esteem and personal giftedness, eloquence. And so becoming infatuated with those things, they had kind of moved away from the centrality of doctrine, doctrine that centers around Christ and him crucified. And they had put doctrine and they had put Christ himself kind of on the back burner. I mean, like, we need, we need more important things. We're, there's more pressing realities that we need to focus on. And so, last week, as we saw, Paul reminds them that God is the one who had sovereignly cho- chosen and saved them. As he delights to take what is weak in the eyes of the world to powerfully accomplish his purposes. Well, he kind of continues that same argument today, but now he points and reminds them of his ministry among them. And he says this too is evidence for how God uses what is weak in the eyes of humans to powerfully accomplish his purposes. And this is in direct contradiction to the worldly wisdom which you are infatuated with. And so today, what we see... It's how the preaching ministry of the church is central to her unity and growth and holiness. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. This is God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Let's pray again. Lord, we, we long to hear the testimony of God this morning, not the testimony of a man. We are here, we are here, Father, with expectation that we will hear the words of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, as we approach your word, then we stop and we pray then that you would lift the veil, that you would soften the soil of our hearts, that the seed may fall on it and take root, that the power of the Holy Spirit would be demonstrated in our midst. Lord, we know that all of our preaching and studying and reading is in vain unless the Lord grants understanding, unless you 
cause it to take root. Hear us and answer us then, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. That your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you're a professing Christian here today, I I trust that that last verse strikes a solemn chord in your heart. It should. What is the nature of your faith? What is the object and ground of your faith? Why do you believe? Do you profess or did you profess Jesus simply because you were allured by what might be called the wisdom of men? Do you profess faith because at some point you were enamored or manipulated or perhaps just drawn to a particular personality or by an engaging speaker or maybe by a message where believe the gospel and you will enjoy a life of esteem and prosperity and happiness? How do you know, following this verse, that your faith rests in the wisdom of men or the power of God. Of course, this is part of the problem that Paul lays before the congregation there in Corinth because they had this man-centered type of faith. Well, maybe the bigger problem is that they didn't see it. This is a church that professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would have asked them, if you would have sat them down and said, now tell me, do you have a man-centered faith or do you have a Christ-centered faith? They'd probably look at you a little crazy. They're like, well, of course it's all about Jesus. Doesn't everybody know that? But the way in which they were acting, the divisions among them, what they valued, what they esteemed, what they gravitated toward, They were living as though their faith rested and centered upon human wisdom and human giftedness and human ideals. We've seen the last few weeks this church was enamored with what we might call elaborate and flowery rhetoric, a kind of dramatic oratory of public speakers in that day, part and parcel of the Greek culture. It wasn't as if they were chasing worldly wisdom. It wasn't as if they were saying, okay, the scripture, we're going to throw that out. Let's turn on the news and find, you know, what we really need for living. They weren't doing that. It's simply that they, they tended to favor one teacher over another because of the manner of speaking instead of the content in which was proclaimed. In other words, truth was no longer defined by its content or its relation to Jesus Christ. Practically, in the life of the church, truth was ultimately defined by who could persuade the best. Using the elaborate and convincing speaking and oratory methods of that day. Of course, the the end result of this is that this approach exalted human pride and self-glory. Who had the greatest gifts? They are most important. Who could convince you of truth based upon the way they communicate it instead of the content? So no surprise then that they were divided. 
As we look around in our day, I don't think you need me to convince you that we are in no way immune to these things. We see some of the stuff all around us in our day. The church has always tended to gravitate toward dynamic speakers. And sometimes in our sinfulness, we like to cozy up to those who make us feel the best about ourselves. Speakers who boost our self-esteem, our sense of worth. I think this is particularly challenging in our very therapeutic culture. And the question more often than not is not who, uh, uh, who speaks the truth or who tells me what I need to hear. It's more of like, who can speak to my heart? Who can engage my emotions? Of course, another and even greater abuse of this is the use of entertainment and humor and amusement. When that takes center stage in the life of the church, what is most effective in ministry or what is most authentic in worship is often defined by what's, what's inspirational, what's emotional, what's exciting. Rather than what is God-centered, what is Christ-centered? And don't get me wrong, this error can go the other way as well. People that pride themselves on simplicity and plainness of speech, they can fall into the same error because that too places the focus on them. They still remain the center of attention. Using simplicity as a kind of pride to look down upon others. It's no different than what was going on here. All of these things and more illustrate how we too are in danger of having a faith that rests in the wisdom of men but in the, uh, rather than the power of God. And of course, I, I, hope, I hope you know that, that a faith that rests in the wisdom of man is a faith that has no power to save and no power to sanctify. We see here from this passage, it's only through the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified is the power and Spirit of God demonstrated. And it's only through that message, that, that ministry of the gospel that creates and sustains faith that truly rests upon and relies upon the power of God. This passage then gives us a paradigm for faithful Christian ministry and church life. This passage shows us that there's a direct relationship between the preaching ministry of the church and the church's unity and growth and holiness. In some sense, you are responsible for the type of preaching that you sit under. You can either, like the heathen, heap up for yourselves through itching ears, teachers that suit your own passions, or you can demand and you can seek, un- seek and you can sit under those who determine to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. This passage helps us, all of us here today, to seek what we need the most, to seek what glorifies God the most, to seek that which creates and sustains genuine God-centered rather than a man-centered faith. That's what we see in our passage today. Three points as we break this down, these five verses. I want you to see the preaching of Christ, the power of weakness, and the purpose of faith. Preaching power and purpose. Notice right away, verse 1 and 2, how Paul points to the preaching of Christ. Now look at verse 1 again. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not... Come proclaiming to you 
the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Last week, we saw how Paul basically says, you're infatuated with all this human wisdom and rhetoric, but if you looked at yourself, if you looked at your calling, that God chose you what most of you are low and despised in the eyes of the world, and he did so, so that no one may boast? Well, here he takes that argument just a step further, and he says, think about how this church was planted. Think about my ministry among you. Think about how all of this got started. Not just you as an individual, but you as a church. And he goes on then to draw their attention to how God works. And he details this negatively and then positively. Negatively, as we saw, as we just read in verse 1. The church wasn't planted and they didn't come to faith through the proclamation of lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty speech, of course, means exactly what it sounds like. Eloquence or rhetoric. Uh, We might say highfalutin words. (laughs) Highfalutin. Fancy words. Emotional or rhetorical manipulation. This is speech, as I mentioned earlier, that highlights the speaker. Speech that draws attention to the speaker. Speech, speech that, that, that attracts or persuades the audience or those listening based upon the personality or wisdom or communication of the speaker rather than the content. What Paul is saying is, look, don't you know I didn't come tickling your ears? I didn't come seeking human applause or, you know, to find myself agreeable among you? I didn't come in a way to distinguish myself as anyone particularly special. And he adds that he didn't come with wisdom either. And it's best to understand lofty wisdom. Lofty is describing this wisdom because it doesn't refer to wisdom, you know, at all, as if he didn't come with any wisdom. It certainly isn't to be taken as though he refused to employ wisdom or deep arguments or philosophy in his preaching. He's not saying to them that he came to speak to them like a five-year-old. That's, that's not the point. This is referring to, to human, a wisdom that serves human arrogance. Wisdom that is meant to wow the mind. Uh, to capture the attention. So that you're drawn really to the speaker himself. Making it very persuasive. You know, when the giftedness or the the great knowledge of the speaker takes center stage so that you're wowed by that rather than the content. Paul says, look, this church was not planted and your faith was not brought about by these things. I came instead positively bringing you the testimony of God. I didn't come bringing my own thoughts my own opinions, my own wisdom, my own convictions, my own personal advice for your life. I came proclaiming what God has said. I came as a herald, not to form my own message, but to relay the message that had been entrusted to me by the king. What is that message? Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you, Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not saying that he 
set aside all other wisdom, all other doctrine, all other philosophy, all over it, all other everything and anything except, you know, only to speak about Jesus in his death. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that Christ and the cross kind of make up the sum and substance of everything that I proclaimed and taught. He's saying essentially that all of scripture, all of life, all of everything in the church, all centers on and relates to and comes back to Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ crucified. So think about it this way. He didn't come preaching Christ simply as a teacher. Here's the wisdom that Jesus brought. He didn't come preaching Christ simply as an example for us to follow. Be like Jesus. He didn't come bringing Christ simply as someone who helps us get to where we want to go. Or as Christ is simply the source of a new and greater wisdom. Or as Christ as the one who can get get us to what we really think is most important, our own obedience to the law. He didn't come bringing a message that, that is aimed at answering life's deepest mysteries. He didn't come bringing a message that is the key to life-changing self-improvement or, you know, the answer to all of society's ills. He didn't come preaching his opinions, what worked in his life. He didn't come preaching his own politics or his idea of social change or his idea of self-improvement. He came preaching Jesus Christ crucified, the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Christ who is smitten and stricken, stricken by God and afflicted. The Christ who died as a propitiation for our sins. The the Christ who satisfied the wrath of God in our place. The Christ who went willingly to the cross, turning the other cheek, submitting to his Father's will, emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, humbling himself even to obedience to death on the cross. So that's the contrast here. You have the the Corinthians, that they were divided on the basis of human arrogance, rhetorical skill, personalities, personal preferences, nothing but but pride and self-sufficiency and glorying in the gifts that they had. And then on the other hand, you have this contrast. The Savior is crucified. The cross which shouts our utter sinfulness and brokenness and helplessness. And a Savior who was utterly humiliated and shamed and reviled and hated. Yet Paul is saying, it's only this Savior who can save. Don't you know what you're doing? I'm reminded here of what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3.3. He says to them, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You were saved by faith through the Holy Spirit. Do you think now that you're sanctified by your obedience to the law? How foolish could you be? And he he goes on in Galatians to show the utter utter contrast between faith and works. Well, something similar is going on here. 
Except the contrast is between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Between human wisdom and divine wisdom. Between human power and divine power. And Paul is saying, don't you remember how you began? Are you so foolish that you begun through the preaching of Christ? Are you now being perfected by something else? Don't you remember how Christ crucified melted your heart and broke your sinful will and ushered in the Holy Spirit into your heart and life and saved you from your sin? Now would you just leave this off to go on to bigger and better things that you need to hear and learn? As if now you really need these human teachers and human wisdom to kind of lead you where you need to go? This is how, instead of the humble, faithful, servant-hearted Jesus Christ as our model, instead in the life of the church, their love for human giftedness has made man and his skill and his giftedness and his pride and his arrogance as their focus. And that's why they were so divided. (coughs) Excuse me. Brethren, the message for us is clear. Focusing on our, focusing our worship and our proclamation upon the testimony of God is certainly not likely to draw in the biggest crowds. And it's certainly not going to give us kind of that pride and glory that sometimes feels good. The glory of having full churches and big budgets and all of that. Christ in him crucified is the only message that will save. And Christ in him crucified is the only message that will sanctify. And Christ in him crucified is the only means by which the power of God is unleashed in our hearts and in our midst. Christ in him crucified being the center of church life is the only thing that will keep us united in the faith. That we don't tear each other up with our divisions and our factions. So this is the paradigm for ministry right off the bat. The preaching of Christ, the preaching of the testimony of God, which of course is God exalting instead of man exalting. But we need to move on to see this fuller. Secondly, after the preaching of Christ, we see the power of weakness as well. The power of weakness, and we see this in verse 3 and 4. Look there again in verse 3. And I... I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Notice that we have two and I statements that kind of bracket this passage. We, we have the, the and I in verse 1. When I came to you, it recounts the first time he came to them. His first encounter with them. And this and I in verse 3 really kind of indicates his ongoing relationship with them. The first and I kind of focuses on the message and his method, which was preaching. And now this and I focuses more on himself as the preacher. And what he's saying is that it wasn't just my message that illustrated the humility and weakness of Christ-centeredness. But I'm nothing special myself as well. Of course, we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to when he speaks about weakness and fear and trembling. Um, there's been a whole lot of speculation on this. We could speculate from what we know about Paul. Um, 
Maybe he spoke this way because of the ongoing threat of persecution. Uh, He was fearful and hesitant uh, because he legitimately feared for his life. Um, Maybe he spoke this way because of his ongoing health issues. His frequent bodily ailments that we know he had. His thorn in the flesh. One scholar suggests that he suffered from epilepsy. Or another kind of neurological disorder that sometimes would affect his speaking, his, his speaking, his manner of speech, or maybe control of his body. Maybe he twitched, which, you know, the trembling here. Parkinson's disease or something. That seems to make sense from what we know about Paul. But regardless of the circumstances, he's basically saying, look, I was entirely stripped of my own self-confidence and strength and self-reliance. Uh, Maybe this was just a mental thing that, you know, he speaks elsewhere of how he was burdened by the anxiety of the churches, burdened with anxiety for the churches, burdened with the the task of faithfully fulfilling his ministry. Maybe he was just overcome with thoughts of his own inadequacy. Maybe he was just incredibly lonely. Ministry is a very lonely office. And Paul, we know this very much. He, he writes a lot about, please come to his friends. Come visit me. He gets lonely. And you can hear the desperation at times in his voice. Maybe he's lonely. We don't know exactly. But, but the point is just, there's nothing special about Paul. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, uh, 10, there were some in the church who spoke with him spoke of him with contempt because they said his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. There's nothing special about his person. There was nothing special about his appearance. A second century source points to the fact that he was short, that he was bald, that he had a crooked nose, that he had a unibrow. I mean, that's what it says. There was nothing special about him. There's nothing in his public persona that was special. So whether it was he was weak in mind or maybe he was weak in speech or weak in spirit. When he was among them, he's saying, don't you see how everything about me screams in the antithesis of strong and powerful and confident? Nothing about my ministry pointed to or communicated self-sufficiency or self-giftedness or self-glory. Here, I can't help but think of Job and our year-long study of Job a couple of years ago. Because if you remember Job, remember he lost everything in a day, house, home, career, investments, children, family, health. These horrible scabs and bodily disformation. He he even had a wife that openly mocked him. And and all throughout the book of Job, Job's friends, they're arguing, they're debating over, okay, why have you suffered this way? And what is God like in the world? And all of these things. All throughout the book, Job's friends subtly, but very persistently, point to his condition as proof that what he was saying was wrong and they were right. Many times they they essentially said in kind of a mocking manner, how could you be so right in this debate when your health and your life is such a wreck? And in the end, God rebukes Job's friends, but he says, you know, Job spoke rightly of me. 
That's kind of the picture here. You have this weak little man with health problems, poor eyesight, eyesight, maybe a speaking disorder. He's hated and chased by religious Jews who love the Old Testament. He keeps getting thrown in jail by the Gentiles. Right? He's a criminal. That's a real trustworthy guy. He keeps suffering these misfortunes like shipwreck, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure. And and we're supposed to listen to him as having the highest and greatest wisdom in the universe. Can, Can you just hear like, physician, heal thyself. If you have the truth, why is your life such a wreck? Why are you such a pitiful, lowly creature? If God was on your side, would this really happen to you? That's what Paul is saying here. He's glorying in his weakness, as it were. And clearly the Corinthians are having trouble with it. One of my favorite social commentaries of our day is uh, the book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, It is a must read. I'll just say it's not a Christian book. Neil Postman was a religious Jew. It's one of the best commentaries on our times. Uh, I had a pastor one time tell me, if you want to understand your people, you need to read this book. Um, Postman looks at how television has turned our life upside down. And how television is so dangerous, not as this is an evil thing we must avoid, but how it shapes our thinking. And how the more we're exposed to it, we are framed by visual rather than um, eyesight, rather than, than, than hearing. We're, we're framed by emotion more than truth. And he's writing in the 80s, so, you know, there's, before the internet, there's some date, you know, his analysis is dated in some sense. But one of the arguments he makes is that, Uh, Americans would never elect a grossly overweight or an ugly president. He also shows that like the personal attractiveness of news anchors has a direct tie into ratings. How many people watch? And he shows we have a greater trust of information when it comes from someone we deem attractive rather than someone that we don't like looking at. So you take a, a, a person who's good-looking and well-spoken, and you set someone else who's unattractive and maybe not a very good speaker, maybe they stutter or something. And in America, largely content doesn't matter. We are going to naturally gravitate towards the person that we see has their life together, is attractive and well-spoken. And don't we see this in our culture, right? The polished, sharp-dressed, good-looking politician, smooth words and flattery, the used car salesman, right? The lawyer who can really get whatever he wants. Truth doesn't matter. He's, he's got such a way with words. Think of the, the megachurch pastor and, and his wife. You know, they're often poster childs for plastic, plastic surgery, Paul is saying, nothing in me, nothing about me was was naturally attractive. It was rather the opposite. Even in my speech and my message, when I preached it and how I preached it, there was nothing that the world values. 
Verse 4, my speech and my wisdom were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I didn't come with flourishing words, answering life's deepest mysteries, speaking in a way that makes you feel good about yourself. But I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Because when I preached humiliation and the weakness of the cross, you were converted. When I preached Christ crucified, lives were transformed. When I proclaimed the testimonies of God, the church was built and the world was turned upside down. For Paul, the power of the Holy Spirit is not in the messenger. And it's not even in the structure of words, the manner in which it's communicated. I would also say as well, despite what maybe Pentecostals say, this demonstration of, uh, of spirit and of power is not linked to like signs and wonders and speaking in tongues. That's a subject he'll return to later in the book. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, is linked to the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. Romans 1.16, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the channel through which the very power of God is unleashed in this world. And, and you know, this is not an excuse to make the sermon a boring lecture. It's not an excuse to fail to use arguments or persuasion or to neglect using powers of reason or wisdom or any of those things. We know from the New Testament a, a pastor must be apt to teach. And this is also not an excuse for a pastor or anyone to, uh, to show no care for personal health or hygiene or prohibit them from seeking to improve the way they speak and method of persuasion. But it is to say that God's power to create and sustain faith rests in the message and not in the messenger. It rests in the content, not in the means of persuasion. God delights to use weak humans of any and every sort to powerfully accomplish his purposes. This is your hope when you share the gospel with unbelievers. Ultimately, if they pick holes, they can find, they can find holes in your heart and life. Nobody lives up to our faith perfectly. They could probably poke holes in your argumentation. You're never going to convince people ultimately. It doesn't rest in your strength and your power. Are you faithful to communicate the message? That's it. Because God delights in using our weakness to accomplish his purposes. This is the paradigm of ministry, preaching Christ and the power of weakness through the preaching of Christ. To wrap this up, third and finally, we've seen the preaching of Christ and the power of weakness. Finally, we see all of this is for a purpose. The purpose of faith. Uh, look again at verse 5. All of this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The point here again, Paul purposely didn't come to wow them with rhetoric. He purposely didn't frame the gospel in the common vernacular of that day which I've detailed in previous sermons where, you know, a, a prof, uh, the profession of public speaker was like a real job. 
in that day. He focused simply on Christ. He preached Christ crucified as a center and ground of all Christian faith and obedience. And he did so that their faith might be genuine and that the power of God would be unleashed in their lives. The power of God speaks of the strength of the Christian life. Faith is a gift from God. You need the power of God to believe. Sanctification, devotion, holiness, unity, love also depends upon the power of God through the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So if the reason that you believe in Christ is because someone said your life will be better and it will give you better principles to flourish and succeed, what will happen when your life doesn't turn out the way that you want it to turn out? What happens when you don't flourish and succeed? If the reason that you came to Christ was because you were convinced it would help you have an awesome marriage and ensure your kids would turn out okay and make your life a a kind of romantic ideal as much as possible in this fallen world, what happens when it all blows up in your face? If the reason you came to Christ is because someone wowed you with wisdom, as if Christianity is the key to unlocking all of life's mysteries, and so that you will never again experience fear or confusion or uncertainty or sorrow, what happens when you do? What happens when seemingly random, unimaginable suffering comes into your life? What happens when life has been nothing but pain and tears and sorrow? If you came to Christ for these reasons, if you came to Christ for, his wis- for this wisdom or because you thought it would m- ensure that you have a better life, if it provides better results, if you believed in Christ because of the preacher, because he was persuasive or manipulative or charismatic, What happens if he sins and he disqualifies himself? What happens if he abandons the faith? What happens if he turns against you? If you came to Christ for any of these reasons, things can happen ultimately that will overthrow those. And what are you left with? I thought this wisdom had life's mystery. I I thought this wisdom would help me have a great life. Now I don't have a great life. Maybe the wisdom is bad. Well, this wisdom sounds better. This person sounds better. This life plan sounds better. This therapy sounds better. This medication sounds better. This religion sounds better. The power of God in salvation is a preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Another way of putting it would be That the presence of Christ in our midst, in this congregation, is evident simply by the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Paul wants them to see that if they rest their faith on all these other things, it can always be challenged. It can always be overthrown. But Christ cannot be overthrown. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ is present to save and to sanctify through the preaching, the weakness of preaching 
and ministry that focuses on his life, death, and resurrection. And so that we can say with certainty, where is God at work? Where is God moving in our midst? Ultimately, it's based not on our perception of results or how it makes us feel. It's based ultimately on, is the gospel faithfully proclaimed and taught? Their God is. Their God is active. Their God is accomplishing his purposes. And so, brethren, as a paradigm for ministry, this is what we are to seek as a church as well. Centrality of cross, not the centrality of the law, not the centrality of what's practical and helpful, not the centrality of what's esoteric or emotional or inspirational, The centrality of Christ crucified as sanctifying and saving sinners, uniting the body of Christ and evidence of Christ at work in our midst. And so as we conclude today, I mean, the simple question is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? We began by asking the question, how do you know that your faith is based on the power of God instead of the wisdom of man? Well, what are you seeking? Or whom are you seeking? What are you satisfied in? Why are you here? When you drive home today and you're discussing the sermon with those you came to church with and you discuss this day, how are you going to evaluate things? How do you know that you're fed and nourished? What do you account as feeding and nourishing you? Brethren, seek Jesus. Seek Jesus. Seek him in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the words that are preached, in the words that are read. Seek him in the supper as he is portrayed as crucified before us. Seek him. Love him. Trust in him. He's all you need. And know for certain that if you're here seeking Christ today, your faith rests in God and not in man. Go forth with that hope. And let us as a church never move off from this paradigm of ministry right here. We can never move beyond the centrality of Christ and Him crucified in our church. When we do, we're heading in the wrong direction. And when we're, if, by God's grace, hopefully not, but if times when we are divided or we're running into factions or there's sin in our church, that is a flashing red light. In some way and somehow, we have moved off from this. And it's God's graciously calling us back to rest in his arms. The simple means of Christ preached and loved, portrayed and sung and observed and heard. May God give us the grace to receive this today. Let's pray.